I'm going to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to a passage we looked at last week, there at the end, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. As you're finding your place in 2 Corinthians 5, I want you to hear from Philippians chapter 2. You don't have to turn there, it'll be on the screens for you. Paul says to the church at Philippi, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If you watch TV at all, if you open the newspaper or stroll online, you see all sorts of advertisements. One particular uh, genre of advertisements, if you will, are the companies, the fitness companies that are always trying to sell us their supplements, their equipment, and their routines. They, they, they show us these things because it's vital to their business, it's vital to their business structure to show th- these items to us, but they want to do something else. They always accompany it with a before and an after picture, right? The, these diet uh, and meal programs that we see on TV, these commercials where you can buy their food and they'll ship it to your house, and if you will eat this certain, certain kind of food for a certain amount of time, this is what you look like beforehand, and this is what you may look like six months to a year down the road. So this is a vital business, and this approach is vital to that business. They want you to see that the use of their product will transform your bodies and restore you to your former size and your former health. To do this, they use those pictures, they use videos, they use the documentation of the journey, whatever the length of the journey may be. And they show that regular use of their product combined with a good diet and regular exercise will work together to produce the desired results. And you hear that and you see that, you also see that they illustrate something else. You have to combine their product with some diligency and some intentionality. You have to put it to work in order to achieve those desired results. That's kind of what Paul is saying here in Philippians chapter 2. He's explained already how sinners are rescued through the cross of Jesus Christ. Their sins have been forgiven, and now they've been given new life in Jesus In other words, what Paul says, he says, work out. What that means is there's something that's already been worked in. Jesus has worked salvation into our lives, those of us who have called upon his name. And so now in this new life, Paul is saying, you are to work out that new life in your daily living. You're to work out what God has already worked in. They're to bring to the surface in every facet of their lives the life of Jesus. That's what Paul is saying here. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Let me illustrate this maybe a little differently. Every one of us have muscles, right? You agree with that? Do you have muscles? Do you have a, a, a muscle in your head that can nod your head one way or the other? We all have muscles. I mean, think about it. If we didn't have muscles, you wouldn't be able to do anything. You wouldn't be able to stand up or, or talk or move your leg. I remember several years ago, I blew my knee out on the basketball court, and, and they flipped me over in a chair after the pain went away a few minutes later, and I, the next thing I knew is I'm trying to lift my foot off the ground, and it didn't move. The tendon had been disconnected. It was the weirdest feeling in the world. And so if we didn't have muscles, we couldn't even move or talk or even breathe. We all have muscles. If you don't believe it, If we were to all stand up this morning, we're not going to, but if we were to stand up and flex, you would see that we all have biceps. Now, some look a little different than others. Some are bigger and toned, and some are not so toned and not very big, but we all have muscles. 
Think of it another way. We all have washboard abs. This is the time of the year where some people in the world, as they look towards summer, say, I want that washboard six-pack abs. Anybody this morning want that? I've got good news for you. You have them. Every one of us have them. They're there. They're just covered up like mine are over a, by a layer of, of fat and other things. But they're there. We all have muscles. We just need to build up the size and we need to reduce what's on top of them so that they show. Paul is telling the church at Philippi that we're to work out the life of God that's been placed within us through Jesus Christ so that it shows itself like it ought to. We need to build those spiritual muscles up in our lives. We need to allow God to do what he wants to do. This is the concept Paul's teaching here to the church in Philippi. See, the new life in Jesus has been deposited into our lives. And now it's our responsibility to work in tandem with the Holy Spirit to bring the life of Christ to the surface of how we live every single day. How we work, what we do at the job site, at the school, what we do in our playtime. We're to allow the life of Jesus to, to, to flesh itself out in daily living. So Paul told the Philippians, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. See, Paul's not telling them to work for their salvation. If that's what Paul was saying to the church at Philippi, he would have to go to the church at Ephesus and say, I apologize, I made a mistake because I told you that salvation is by faith alone, through Christ alone. It's not a work of yourselves. On the contrary, the salvation that you've been given is the gift that the Lord has worked into your hearts. And now as a Christian, you're to work that out. We're to put it to work as we cut, our fleshly, cut out our fleshly involvements. And when we do so, the life of Christ in us will become more and more visible. It, it will show out in our lives. We call this sanctification. Now, over the last several weeks, as we've been walking through this story, we've been shown the same video, and one of the purposes for that is this. You can take this video, you can go to thestoryfilm.com, and you can take this video and use it as, an, as a way to share your faith with someone else. The things that we're teaching up here, these four scenes, fall, uh, uh, rescue, restoration, creation, all of those scenes, you can take those and tell the story of the gospel to someone else. So as I preach through this doctrine of salvation, I'm preaching in a way that you can take it and need to take it and share it with someone else. But we're coming to this point in the restoration where we see this concept of sanctification. We're to work out what God has worked in. We're to allow him to become more and more Lord over all of our lives, every aspect of our lives. The life of Christ ought to be pressed out through how we live. And it's this restoration, this sanctification of our lives to what God has originally purposed for us that we desire. We want to be and experience all that he created us to be and to experience. This is part of the story of the Bible. And I just mentioned those four scenes, creation, fall, rescue, and this morning we're going to look at restoration. We've seen how God created all that there is. We saw how Adam and Eve sinned there in the garden and, and, and plummeted themselves and the rest of creation into sin and shame, bringing separation between them and the God they were created for. We saw last week how God there is the saving Savior. He sought them out as he promised how there would be one who came or would come and, and he would be bruised, but he would break the head of the enemy. And he rescued us through the cross of Jesus Christ, through the blood that he shed, so that now when we faith into him, when we say no to sin and yes to Jesus, we can be rescued, but now put on a path of restoration, that we can recover all that has been broken and lost 
through sin. And so this morning, in the time remaining, I want us to look at 2 Corinthians 5, a passage we finished with last week, and look at what Paul says here about the restoration in our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in it, trying to speak too fast today, back up here. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray this morning. Lord Jesus, we pray that in the next remaining moments that we have together, that you would take this word and this passage and what we're looking at this morning and speak into our lives. Lord, many in this room know you as Lord and Savior, but Lord, they may be walking at a guilty distance. Lord, it doesn't matter where we're at spiritually. We know that you love us. You know that you care for us. You know that you desire for us to lean in more and to love you more fervently. God, to walk in greater faithfulness. So God, I pray that you'd help us to see what you desire for us and give us a desire for that. God, I pray for those who may be lost today, that may, not, may have religion but not a relationship. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that lost people would be saved this morning, that they would hear clearly the gospel message and be drawn to it and away from their sin. Bless your word in the preaching of it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Two truths about restoration that I want us to see and understand this morning from this passage as we prepare our hearts on this Palm Sunday for Easter. You know, one of the greatest opportunities we have as Christians each and every year to share our faith with others, to invite them to church so they can hear the gospel is where we're at right now. It's this week of the year. People are more open to the gospel, more open to invitations to church than ever before. And so before we get into the, the, to the nuts and bolts of this message this morning, I want to encourage you to take the opportunities this week to invite the people that you live around. Hopefully you're praying for them through Bless Every Home. You're, you're seeking to build relationships and friendships and minister and serve them. Use this as an opportunity to invite those people to church with you, to have gospel conversations this week where you live, where you work, where you go to school, and even where you play wherever that may be, in whatever way you may play, use those as gospel opportunities to talk of Jesus. So two things this morning that we need to see and understand about restoration in our lives as Jesus followers. First things is this. In the restoration, God makes all things new. God makes all things new. The Bible tells us that Adam was the head of the old creation. Obviously, he's the first human that was ever created. From him, Eve was created, and through them, all of us came into existence. And so, the Bible tells us that Adam is the head of the old creation. The Bible also tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, that Jesus Christ is the last Adam. He is the head of the new creation. He's the one who comes to change and to alter and to bring to restoration the fall that came into existence because of Adam and his sin. And so this old creation, when Adam sinned, plunged 
everything into sin and into the condemnation of God because of his disobedience. But the new creation means righteousness and salvation because of the obedience of Jesus. We can have righteousness and we can live obediently because of what Jesus did for us. We experience the sin and the shame and the separation because of what Adam did. We can experience forgiveness of sin and restoration because of what Jesus has done for us. Because as Christians, we're part of this new creation. The Bible would tell us that everything has become new. So what has become new? In our Christian life, in Jesus Christ, what has become new? Here's the four things that I want you to see. New life in Christ. In Jesus, because of what he's done for us, we can experience new life in Christ. You see, Adam's sin ushered in death. Remember what God told Adam. If you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And that's exactly what happened. When he and Eve took that fruit and they ate of that fruit, what did, they, what, what did they do? What happened next? They died. Physically, they eventually died, but spiritually, they immediately died. God comes walking in the cool of the day. He comes calling out to Adam, and where are Adam and Eve? They're hiding from God. They've already made loin coverings for themselves because they felt the shame in their life. Something changed dramatically in them when they sinned and rebelled against God. They died, and that death has been passed down to every generation from Adam to us today, and we will continue to pass that sinful uh, generation, generational sin on into the future until Jesus returns. The Bible tells us that we all sin. We all fall short of His glory, His standard of holiness. The Bible tells us that the payment for that failure is death, Romans 6.23 tells us. But thankfully, in Jesus, we find life. You see, it's Jesus who awakens our dead spirits to everlasting life in Him. Only Jesus can do that. I often have quoted this verse because God used this verse to, to bring me to new life in Jesus. 1 John 5.12, He who has the Son has life. But he who does not have the Son does not have life. How many people today are sitting in churches, listening to sermons, maybe even here this morning today, you're a religious, you go through the, uh, the motions of, of what it means and looks like to be a Christian, but there's no life in you whatsoever. I can testify to how that, 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 that lives itself out into a person's life. There's a time in my life as a re very religious teenager, a very religious freshman in college, I was doing everything I could to look the part and, and be the part, but I had no life within me. But the moment I gave my life to Jesus, the moment I said yes to him and no to my sin, I felt an immediate weight of the guilt and the shame come off me. And I'm not a mystical person. I'm a, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical on the way some people describe stuff. But I remember that day. I'm one of those guys that remembers dates and times and, and things of that nature. I remember my watch clicking one. It was April 24th, 1997, so it'll be here in just a couple of weeks, I'll celebrate 22 years as a follower of Jesus. But I remember getting up off my knees in the bathroom of the place where I worked, and immediately I felt the release of the sin and shame in my life. Have I sinned since then? Absolutely. I've probably sinned today a hundred times, just like you have. So before you start looking at me and saying, boy, that guy, I tell you what. But I don't bear that, that sin anymore. I don't bear that shame anymore. I don't bear the condemnation for that sin anymore. Why? Because I've been brought from death to life, and I have life in Jesus. Not life in myself, not life in my pedigree, not life in my degrees, not life in my family. I don't even have life in you. My life is in Jesus, just like if you're a Christian, your life is in Jesus. 
So Jesus makes all, through, all things new by resurrecting dead sinners to new life again. Secondly, we see we have a new home in heaven. You see, one of the physical consequences of sin is physical death. We'll have funerals this week of people connected to our church family who have died. That's a consequence of the fall. Here's a reality check this morning. Here's something to encourage you as you come to church today. I know you wanted to be encouraged, so here's an encouraging word. You're going to die. You're going to. You're going to die, and you need to prepare for that. One of the consequences of sin for all of us is physical death. When I turned 40 last year, I kept joking with people, I'm half dead. Most men live to be about about 80 and 40s halfway, and so I figured I'm half dead. You know, I'm moving that way. I'm slowing down in my in my middle age, and so I'm moving that direction. I know some of that. Some of you laugh, but you understand where I'm coming from. You were there once. It was a long time ago, but you were there. If you're going to laugh at me saying I'm old at 40, I'm going to laugh at you because you are old. <clears throat> So we're going to experience death. Here's the good news. Jesus secured new life in heaven with God the Father. Death awaits me. The grave is going to find me one day. I'm going to be put six foot under, but it doesn't scare me at all. Because I have new life in Jesus. That's not there. I'm just passing through. This life is not all that there is. I'm passing through. And so Jesus has brought victory. I mean, this is what we sing about this morning. He's brought the victory in our lives through his death and his resurrection. Therefore, as a follower of Jesus, I have a new home, and that home is in heaven with God. Think about what Jesus told the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. Hey, man. You're going to die in just a little bit, and you deserve the death. God knew he deserved the death. He was yelling at the other thief, saying, don't, don't, don't badger him. We deserve what we got here coming. But he doesn't deserve it. He's the sinless one. He's the innocent one. And so he faithed into Jesus at that, at that moment, and Jesus says today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Don't fear the death that's awaiting you. You have new life in me. The Bible teaches us that at the moment of death, every single person's spirit goes to one of two places. For the lost sinner who's rejected Christ, his or her spirit goes to a place of eternal punishment. That place is called hell. We still need to believe in hell. You know why? Because the Bible still teaches that hell is a real place. It's not some mystical place. It's not some some, uh, mythological place. It's not some fairy tale or, or some story that someone made up. No, real people do real dying, and they go to a real place called hell when they reject Jesus as Lord and Savior. That ought to motivate you this week to share the gospel with someone that needs to hear Jesus because that person may experience eternity at some point this week. God help them. So the lost sinner who rejects Christ goes to hell. For the believer who embraces Christ by faith, his or her spirit goes to be with the Lord in heaven. Uh, there's a beautiful parable that Jesus talks about and shares in Luke chapter 16 where, where the Lazarus is this man who faithed into God and, and, and the other person, the, the, the rich man, didn't faith into God. Both of them died. Lazarus goes to what's called Abraham's bosom, a picture of heaven. And the, the rich ruler goes to hell story as it goes there, the rich ruler says, send Lazarus just to dip his finger in water and put it on my tongue. And, and, and Abraham says, no, we can't do that. There's a chasm. You can't cross back and forth. And he says, well, send Lazarus to my brothers so that they don't come to where I am. 
Hell is a reality. Heaven is a reality. And in Christ, we have a new home in heaven. There's coming a day when God will make a new heaven and a new earth. And this new heaven and this new earth is going to be completely free of sin. It's going to be completely free of selfishness. It's going to be a place of perfect friendship with God, perfect friendship with others, and a place where all of creation worships to God, worships God collectively together, and everything will be restored to the way it was meant to be. Revelation 21 so beautifully speaks to that moment. God's given us a new home in heaven all through Jesus Christ. But there's a third thing that's made new, and that is new purpose in or a new purpose for living. A new purpose for living. In our sin, who do we live for? You live for sin and self. That's who you live for. You live to please your father, the, 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 the devil himself. He's your father, the father of lies. You see, in our sinfulness, we live for the pleasure of our flesh, as Galatians 5, 16 through 21 speaks of. But Jesus changes all that. He gives us new purpose. And now we can live for Jesus as we pursue the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. The the following verses there in Galatians 5 speaks of that. In our sin, we want to pursue all that this world would would tell us is good and wonderful and and enriching. And yet it's a lie and and a farce. But in Christ, now we can pursue. It doesn't mean we always pursue, but it means we can pursue the goodness and the purpose that God has for us as his followers in Jesus. The Lord enables us to live out the purpose for our creation. Colossians 1.16, I love this verse. You were made by God and for God, it teaches us. And so now in Jesus, he gives me a new purpose, a new mission, a new desire. So I now want to live for him. I want to experience the, the purpose for which I was created. We now... We're no longer living for ourselves, but we're living for the one who gave himself up for us. So this restoration, Jesus is working in my life right now, means a few things. It means I'm not living for the weekend. How many times do Christians live for the weekend? Now, we understand that the people who are not in Jesus living for the weekend, living for the recreation, living for the party life, living for whatever good things and, and, and pleasurable things that this world may May offer, And I'm not saying those things are necessarily bad, but we don't live for those. Man, if you're living for vacation, if you're living for, for, for pleasure, if you're living for anything that's necessarily good but not great, you're living for the wrong things. We don't live for those things. We don't live for the bottom. We don't live for, for some sort of medicated state. We don't live for wealth. We don't live to please others. We don't live even for family. In Jesus, we've been given a new purpose. I live for him. Now I have the capacity to live for that which I was created to live for. I'm now able to flesh out the very purpose for my existence, to worship God and enjoy Him forever. That's why you were created. You weren't created so that you could work nine to five and make a little bit of money and live the American dream and take vacations and have two and a half children and live in a beautiful house with a white picket fence and as beautiful and wonderful as those things are. I I mean, we love those things. Hopefully I'm experiencing some of those things. That's not the purpose of my life. It's not the purpose for my family. It's not the purpose for you and our church. Our purpose is for God, to enjoy him and to worship him forever. And so the the Beatitudes that Jesus speaks of there in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, what what happens when Jesus gets a hold of our life is he begins to change our want-tos. The attitudes that ought to be now are able to flesh themselves out 
in our lives. He gives us a new and true purpose for living. That is the glory of God. And then he gives us a new walk with God. I just mentioned earlier Adam and Eve there in the garden. You see the picture of him walking in the cool of the day with the Lord. That's the relationship that they used to enjoy. When Adam's teeth pierce the fruit, whatever that fruit may be, it's always depicted as an apple. That comes from a Catholic background. I don't know if it was truly an apple. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter at all what it was. I tend to believe that it was something gross, like a lemon. or a, There's a fruit in Africa called a jackfruit, and people over there said it's awesome. I think it's terrible. It's like really meaty and grainy. I think Mark and I ate one together a few years ago when we were there. Maybe it was a jackfruit, but whatever it was, plunged us into a terrible state. Everything was lost in the fall. But in Christ, everything has been made new. The relationship that we lost with God has been renewed in Jesus. Think about what happened when Jesus was crucified, when he was placed on that cross, and when Jesus actually died. You remember the story? If you, you know, this week of Easter, I encourage you to go and read the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Read the four different accounts in the Gospels and see what God wants us to understand in those accounts. But when Jesus died on the cross, what happened to the curtain in the temple? It was torn from top to bottom. It's significant that it was torn that way. God is basically saying this, in Jesus, what once separated you from the holiness of God because of sin now has been broken and now has been taken away because of what Jesus in his sinlessness has done for you. Now we have access to God. Now we can walk fresh and anew with God because of what Jesus has done. We can experience the relationship for which we were created to enjoy. And so in Jesus, we get to spend eternity walking with God, but we don't have to wait till then. Think about this. In Jesus, we don't have to just say, all right, I'm a follower of Jesus, and and that's going to be a great life to live when I die or if Jesus returns. We're going to get to spend eternity in heaven. No, it starts today. Eternity in Christ starts the moment you place your faith in Jesus, and we get to live now, even in this fallen world, in this fleshly body, we get to experience a side of eternity and a slice of heaven even today. We have the privilege and responsibility of knowing and growing closer to the Lord as we read his word and study it, as we spend time praying and seeking his face, as we serve him. And think about this, even as we fellowship together as his church, we get to experience a side of heaven and an intimacy with God that we would never have but for Jesus. You say, well, how in the world is coming to church a little bit like heaven? Is this what we're going to do? I don't think so necessarily. It's going to be so much better than that, but it's part of it. It's part of it. So I believe that's why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 25, that we're not to forsake the assembling of the brethren. There's something glorifying to God when the people of God gather together and dwell together in unity and love one another. We have a, a, a way that we come together as one collective voice, as the body of Christ, to worship and to follow the head of the body. God makes all things new. Secondly, and i got to hurry. Y'all just don't listen fast enough. Um, Gloria this morning was like, I'm in children's church today. You need to make it quick. And I was like, okay, sure. And then I heard this morning this report on Fox News. It's funny that uh, they did this, this uh, report on, the, on some research, some studies done on pastors who feel the pressure to preach on certain things or not to preach on certain things. So I feel pressure this morning to be fast, but I don't care. I just shrug it off and we're going to finish. 
God makes all things new. Secondly, we need to understand and and know this morning that God commissions an all-world mission. As we talk about the restoration, obviously he makes all things new, but it's not just for you. It's for the world. God commissions an all-world mission. That's what we see here in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. So what we believe and how we behave, think about this, must always go together. If you say you believe the Bible, but you don't practice what the Bible teaches, you don't believe the Bible. You hear what I said? If you believe the Bible, and yet your life doesn't live up to what the Bible teaches, you don't believe the Bible. They must always go together. And so when Paul writes, and many of these, if not all of these writers write in the Scriptures, they're always leading us to understand doctrine, but that that doctrine would lead us to duty. They must work in tandem with one another. Because God and what he's done for us must motivate us to do something back for the Lord. Phyllis Brooks said it this way, Christianity knows no truth which is not the child of love and the parent of duty. One woman told her pastor, Pastor, you would have preached a marvelous sermon this morning except for all those therefores at the end. All those, you need to do this. Here's what the Word of God says, therefore go do this. And so many people, I believe the church, love to have their, well, we're going to look at it here in a couple of weeks. We're going to begin a series on April 28th, working through the second letter of Timothy to the church. And so there in that letter, Paul says this to Timothy, there's going to be a day and time where the people desire to be, have their ears tickled rather than to walk in obedience to God. And so we've lived in that state for 2,000 years where certain people would rather just be encouraged and uplifted and made the, the warm fuzzies when they come to church, but they don't want to put it into action in the way they live their life Monday through Saturday. So Paul here would agree with this pastor. There needs to be duty put to our doctrine. And the key idea in this passage revolves around reconciliation. Look again, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. We see, beginning in verse 18, this call and this emphasis on Reconciliation. We must be reconciled to God. See, in Adam's rebellion, man is the enemy of God and out of fellowship with him. Every person in this world today who's not in fellowship with Jesus Christ, in other words, they've not received forgiveness for their sin, asked Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of their life, they're out of fellowship and thus they're rebelling rebelling against God. But through the work of Jesus, there on the cross, Jesus brought man and God back together again. So God has been reconciled and has, been tur- and has turned his face of love toward the lost world. That's what Jesus did on the cross. That's what we've sung about this morning. The basic idea of, of reconcile is this, to change thoroughly. God was an enemy to us because we're an enemy to God in our sin. But through Jesus, what he did is he changed that by bearing our sins in his body and paying the penalty. So now God has been reconciled to Man. So he, do, he doesn't have to be reconciled because that was accomplished on the cross. It is sinful man today who must be reconciled back to God. But what we want to do in our sinfulness is we want to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We want to do what we can do, and that often looks like religion. A feeble attempt to please and appease God. You can never do it. You can never keep all the commandments. You can never fully fulfill everything that God has said. You can't always do the right thing. So the person who reconciles us to God is Jesus. And the place where he reconciled us was there on the cross. So we see this teaching on reconciliation. Another key idea is imputation. 
This comes from the world of banking. If you're a banker in here, you got that background, or if you ever go to the bank, you, you should understand this. When you get a paycheck and you take that check to the bank or it's electronically sent there, what happens is the money represented by that check is imputed to your account, put to your account. And so when Jesus, there on the cross, he is on the cross hanging, blood being shed for us, and your sins and my sins were imputed to him, put on him, put in his account, and he paid the penalty for those sins. So now, because of what he did to pay that penalty, he can impute to us his righteousness. God accepted, God the Father accepted his sacrifice as he bore your sins. Verse 21, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he takes your sinfulness and imputes his righteousness back to you. So now we can stand before God the Father one day in complete and, and, and utter uh, holiness, not because we're holy, but because Jesus is holy. Not because we fulfill the law, but because Jesus fulfilled the law. Do you, do you understand what we're saying here? Reconciliation took place because of the cross. Imputation took place because our sins were imputed to him, and his righteousness is now able to be imputed back to us. And so the result is all of our sins have been paid for in full. To tell us thy, Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. God no longer holds them against us. Instead, he has applied his righteousness to our account. His righteousness must be received, though. It must be received. And so he commissions all believers to go to the lost world with the message of reconciliation. Now, when we say that Jesus died for all, that is a true statement. He died for all. His payment he paid there on the cross is sufficient for all people of all time of all sin. But it's not appropriated until you appropriate it in your life. You have to say yes to Jesus. Otherwise... The Bible would teach what we would call universalism, that everybody's going to be saved. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, or, or what belief system you come from. You're just going to be taken in, and God's just going to love you and care for you and, and accept you, even though you may be working completely against him. That's a, that's a fallacy. That is not the teaching of the Word of God. We must come through Jesus. He is the door. There is no other door. And so Paul here is drawing... I think on his understanding of the Roman Empire as he's explaining this. So let me share a couple things with you here. In the Roman Empire, there were two kinds of provinces, senatorial provinces and imperial provinces. The senatorial province was, was a province made up of people who were peaceful and not at war with Rome. So in other words, they had surrendered and submitted themselves to the lordship and leadership of the Roman Empire, to the, to the Caesar. But the imperial provinces were provinces that were not peaceful. They were dangerous because they would rebel against Rome if they could. Judah, the land of Palestine in the days of Jesus, would have been considered an imperial province. And so it was necessary for Rome to send ambassadors to the imperial province to make sure that rebellion did not break out. And so for us, taking this analogy as Christians in this world, we are the ambassadors of Christ, is what Paul is saying. So this means that the world that we live in is in rebellion against God. This world is an imperial province as far as God's concerned. And he has thus sent us as his ambassadors into this world to declare peace, not war. That's why Paul says this, be reconciled to God. That was his message. That was his mandate. And it's our message and it's our mandate today. Be reconciled to God. 
That's what God's called us to go and do. And so as we think about the restoration, he's made all things new in our life, but he's sent us as his ambassadors to preach that same message to everyone else so that the whole world might hear, believe, and receive. If you know Jesus and have been redeemed by him, you're his ambassador. You represent him where you live. You represent him where you work. You represent him where you play. And as a church, we're to represent Christ in our community. We're to be here as a light, as a beacon. We, we are on the tallest hill in the entire uh, county of Powhatan. God placed us here to be a beacon to our community. We're to seek out rebellious sinners in our state as well as in our nation. And listen to this. We're to go to the ends of the world, to all nations with the gospel. Why? Because God has commissioned us with an all-world mission. It's not just for you and I to set on it. It's not just for you and I to set and soak on it. No, we're to take ourselves and allow God to wring us out of his goodness and his glory all around the globe, here and there, to our neighbors and to the nations. Why is it an all-world mission? Why is it part of the restoration? It's because God desires for all people to know him and to find rescue in his death and his resurrection. He died for more than just you and I. He died for more than just you and I. And so he sends us to others. He makes his appeal to law sinners through you. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Can you say that in your own life? I am an ambassador of Christ. God is making his appeal through me. Where I live in my neighborhood, where I work, where I play. You've got to remind yourself of that. You, gotta, you get so busy, you, get, you got blinders on you, you forget to look around that, that God has you strategically where you are for more than just what you're experiencing, more than a paycheck, more than because it's a good neighborhood to, to send your kids to the school, more than any of that. It's about gospel mission. So what does your before and after picture look like? If we were to take snapshots from your life before Christ and compare to them to snapshots today in Christ, what would be the difference? How would they look? Is there demonstrative evidence that a restoration is taking place in your life? Are you different today than you were when you met Jesus? Is your life different? Is there more joy in your heart, more peace in your mind? Is there more happiness and, and, and a sense of fulfillment and accomplishment, a sense of purpose? Are you more like Jesus today? Is there evidence, looking at those before and after pictures of you working in conjunction with the activity of the Spirit of God, and can you say that God is making all things new in your life? What's it look like for you today? What's that restoration look like? Are you actively involved in engaging others in God's mission? Pointing lost sinners to rescue in Jesus? Or a growing faithful follower of Jesus? Hear this will always be an intentional gospel witness. You you show me someone that says, I'm serious about my faith. I'll show you someone that says, I'm serious about telling others about Jesus. You say, that kind of stings, Pastor, because that's not indicative of my life. It ought to sting because it ought to be indicative of your life. A faithful, growing follower of Jesus will be engaged in the mission of God here and there, neighbors and nations. So this morning, as we prepare our hearts for Easter next Sunday, as we go about our week this coming week, Who do you need to talk to? Who do you need to invite? Who is your one? I want to encourage you to think of one family, one person. Rather than getting lost in the forest because of all the trees, just think of that one. 
Who can you intentionally engage this week, have a gospel conversation with, invite to church, invite them to our Easter thing on Saturday? Who can you invite? I mean, we got two services next week. If you haven't paid attention to the bulletin, we got two services next week. We got plenty of room for people. Everybody in here can bring one person, and we have enough room. So don't say, well, I don't know if we'd have enough room or whatever excuse that you're going to make because we all make excuses. I throw myself in the same boat. I don't have time. I don't, I don't feel comfortable. I don't know that person. I don't want to get out on the edge. I don't want to make a, a, a fool out of myself. I don't know what to say. If you've been paying attention and have been here for the last four weeks, you ought to be able to share the gospel because we've talked the gospel for four Sundays now. Creation, fall, rescue, restoration. And next Sunday, we're going to summarize this thing and sum this baby up, and we're going to talk about how God's story, what we've been talking about, needs to be your story. And next week, it's going to be an opportunity as every Sunday for people to place their faith in Jesus Christ. Today, if there's no growth in your life, no witness, it could be that there's no life. He who has the Son has life. But the one who does not have the Son does not have life. If that's you, the greatest need is not to try harder. It's not the, uh, to, to lean in more. The greatest need in your life is to say yes to Jesus and no to your sin. You need to be saved. And so what would keep you from being reconciled to God? If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, wherever you're at in your Christian walk, I would encourage you to do this, to say, Holy Spirit, search my heart this morning and see where I'm not where I need to be spiritually and help me to be reconciled back to God. I don't want to walk at a guilty distance. I don't want to be out of fellowship with God. I want to be hot-hearted, and I want to be committed to the Lord Jesus. And so this morning, what would hinder you from being reconciled back to God? He's done everything necessary to rescue, everything necessary to restore, and he waits this morning with open arms and says, just come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this morning, we love you and thank you for what you have done for us. The only reason we can say we love you is because you have first loved us. You've loved us with a true love. You've loved us with a sacrificial love. You have loved us with an almighty love. Something that, Lord, just is uncomprehendable. But we bless you for what you've done for us. Thank you for the rescue. Thank you for what you're doing in our hearts even today as we seek to, to love you and to pursue you and to know you. God, we thank you for your word that you've given us. We don't walk through this life blindly. You've given us a guide we know and can hear from you. The Spirit of God lives within us. Lord, you've given us everything we need to live Christ's life. Help us this morning to live that. God, I pray for that man, woman, teenager, child, whoever it may be this morning. But today they need to give their life to Jesus. Perhaps this Sunday they're going to try to wait it out like they do every Sunday. God, I pray that you make them so miserable they can't. Lord, I've said many times that the day I came to Christ, there was nothing else I could do. I had to say yes to Jesus. May that be true of someone today. Lord, for us as believers, help us to love you so much more. God, may we see the sweetness of what you've done for us. Though we, we ought to serve you out of obligation because of the sacrifice you've given, but God, I pray we wouldn't have to serve out of obligation. 
have to serve out of duty, but Lord, we would serve out of love. We would press closer to you because we love you, because you first loved us. So God, I pray that maybe we've gained a deeper appreciation for your goodness and your grace in our life. Lord, because of that, we would say no to the things that would entangle us, the things that would ensnare us, the things that would trip us up and, and suck the life out of us. I pray for some sanctification in our hearts today. As we say no to sin and shame, and we say yes to Jesus, even as a believer. So in our time of response, Lord, who cares about the clock right now? In our time of response, Lord, I pray that there would be some genuine obedience and, and fellowship, that we would just say yes, whatever that may be. Lead this time of response. Holy Spirit, have freedom to move in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you